Amen. Thank you, Ron. If you have your Bible uh, or your device, I'd ask you to turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we're going to be looking again at verses 26 through 38. This is uh, a passage that may sound familiar. We looked at it just a couple of weeks ago, uh, but our focus is going to be just a little different today. Uh, Our series is called Adopting Advent because as we have seen and said every week, the Christmas story is an adoption story. God the Son came into the world so that we might be adopted into God's family. He came as the Son of Mary through the power of the Holy Spirit, conceiving Him in her womb. He came as the Son of Joseph through adoption and as the long-promised Son of David through that same act. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 tell us, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The Christmas story is an adoption story. It's the story of how we were adopted by God through the sending of his son. The rescuer, the redeemer, the long promised Messiah had to be the son of David. He had to be the son of man through Mary. He had to be the son of God. And we see this identity of Jesus, God the son as the son of God in the angel's announcement to Mary. So look with me at Luke chapter one, verses 26 through 38. And if you are able, please stand in honor of God's word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what what kind of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born shall be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Almighty God, you have given us grace at this time to come together to your word. You have promised through your well-beloved son that where two or three are gathered in his name, there you will be also. 
We ask you to fulfill in these moments our desire for you to speak powerfully to us, to transform us, to encourage us, to sustain us, and to challenge us. Grant in us, in this world and in the time of this season of the year, the knowledge of your truth. And Lord, in the age to come, give us life everlasting. We pray all these things in the name of the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. I once got to see the Rockettes Christmas Spectacular. Now, I didn't see it uh, at Rockefeller Center in New York City. I, I saw it at the Opry House in Nashville, Tennessee. And it really was an awfully good time. Uh, the dancing and the singing and the Santa Claus was amazing. Uh, everything was so enjoyable, so much fun, so filled with holiday cheer. But I was really blown away with how the show concluded. And that was with an absolutely splendid living nativity. Animals were brought on stage. It was uh, just a beautiful tableau. But while I was moved by the images before me, the thing that really brought me to tears was this narration that was happening while uh, the living nativity was taking place before my eyes that I had never heard before. And the narration was this. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30 when public opinion turned against him. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a tomb, a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today, Jesus Christ is still the central figure of the human race. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on the earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. And the truth of that narration is indisputable. The season that we are in where all over the world, people, religious or not, of all languages and nations and backgrounds, they celebrate his birth whether they know it or whether they don't. And it's just a small example of how true it is that this one solitary life changed the world forever. It's an indisputable truth, but... How is it possible? And people have tried to explain how this simple, humble, plain life 
by human standards could have so revolutionized everything. And usually those explanations tend to end up somehow at, well, the right confluence of events happened at just the right time that somehow made this possible. It's nonsense. Ultimately, the answer of how it is possible for such a humble and simple life to leave such an indelible and transformative impact in the world is found in the words of the angel Gabriel to the Virgin Mary before Jesus was ever conceived. You will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Mary asks, how how is this going to happen since I am a virgin? He says, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The baby that this passage announced, the baby in the manger who transformed the world forever is not just the son of David. He's not just the son of Mary. He's not just the son of Joseph. He was and he is the son of God. And we see this identity of the coming Messiah all through the scriptures. The first thing that we see is that the Old Testament anticipates the Son of God. The Old Testament anticipates the Son of God. And this is true about the entirety of the Old Testament in all of its pieces. The covenant promises and their temporal fulfillments, the sacrificial system, the the tabernacle and the temple and the, the prophets, the priests, the kings, the mighty acts of God in all of history, everything, everything in the Old Testament points us forward to the coming Messiah. But we specifically see that this one who will fulfill the role of Messiah, the redeemer of God's people, will and must be the son of God. And we see that through three primary characters in the Old Testament. Three primary characters in the Old Testament help us anticipate the son of God as the Messiah. The first character that we find in the Old Testament is Adam. Luke's gospel explicitly refers to Adam in his genealogy of Jesus as the son of God. You can look it up. It's Luke 3, 3. This does not mean that Adam was somehow divine, that Adam was God the son. No, he was not. This is analogy. Adam was the first creation of God in his own image. He's not the offspring of any other human being. And so when uh, Luke 3.3 calls Adam the son of God, it's an analogy saying that this is where he came from just as much as when it says that Seth is the son of Adam, that it's declaring from which he came. Adam's role as the first human was to relate to God as father, to bear God's image, to to display God's worth and his character, to glorify and magnify God's glory in all things in his creation. But we know that when tested, Adam failed. 
He failed to bear God's image. He failed to magnify God's glory. He fell short of God's glory through sin. And the father-child relationship between the creator and his creature was broken. In contrast to Adam, Jesus is the offspring of a human being. He is the offspring of the woman, the Virgin Mary. But he is also the true Son of God. He is God's eternal Son who is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, Hebrews 1.3. Being fully God from all eternity, the true Son of God came to do what Adam and every human being since, including you and me, failed to do. He bore God's image perfectly as a human being. He glorified God fully in his person and his work. And Jesus restored the father-child relationship between God and the people that he made in his image. Which is why Paul refers to Jesus, the son of God, as the last Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15, 45, the Old Testament anticipates the Son of God through Adam. The second character that we see is the Old Testament anticipates the Son of God through Israel, the corporate people of God. When God is at work rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt, you know that he sends plagues of judgment on Pharaoh and on his people in Egypt. Uh, One, two, three, four, all the way up to nine. And Pharaoh in his hardness of heart refuses to let Israel go. And so the Lord promises one more plague. The Lord tells Pharaoh through Moses, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Exodus 4, 22 and 23. And we remember the Passover. We remember that it was this final plague that made Pharaoh relent and liberate the Israelites from slavery and captivity in Egypt. And all through the Old Testament, after the Exodus, the Lord relates to Israel and refers to Israel as his son. He treats Israel with love and with grace and with mercy, but also Also with the discipline of a father when Israel goes astray, which if you've read any portion of the Old Testament, you know happened time and time and time again. The father-son relationship between God and Adam, the one that Adam broke, not only for himself but for all of us, is carried on through Israel, anticipating the true son of God who would not disobey his father, who would not go astray, but would fulfill the whole law in perfect holiness. The apostle Matthew tells us the story of how Joseph and Mary and Jesus rose up in the middle of the night because of the warning of an angel and fled from where they were, which was Bethlehem, to the nation of Egypt because of the murderous Herod who wanted to kill the Messiah. And then after 
Herod had died, they return back and settle back in Nazareth. And Matthew in his gospel quotes Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, and applies it to Jesus. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The Old Testament anticipates the Son of God through Adam, through Israel, and there's one more character, and it's King David. Our call to worship this morning was from Psalm 2, where King David writes, in reference to himself, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. With these words, the Lord was establishing a father-son relationship with Israel's king who was anticipating and showing forth a greater reality. God had made a covenant with David, promising him a son, a descendant who would sit on David's throne forever, who would be the son of God. Of course, David, like Israel and like Adam before him, failed. And so did his son Solomon, and so did his descendants after him who broke covenant with God and forfeited Israel's throne. And then come the prophets, who even in brokenhearted lament over Israel's fall and having to declare God's judgment on his people, they prophesy hope. That a king will arise, that a son of David will be the true son of God and will do what David and what Israel and what Adam had failed to do in restoring the relationship that was lost in the fall in rescuing God's people from their sins and ruling and reigning over God's kingdom in righteousness. But the prophets told us that he would not do this as a warrior king with a sword in his fist. That the Son of God would come as a suffering servant to heal what was broken. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as from one whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrow. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Old Testament anticipates the Son of God. The New Testament announces the Son of God. The Old Testament anticipates, the New Testament announces the coming of the Son of God. Before he is ever conceived, the angel tells Mary that this baby is going to be called the Son of the Most High, and as if to emphasize the reality, the Son of God. Mark begins his account of Jesus' ministry like this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. At Jesus' baptism, 
As he is coming up from the water, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And God the Father speaks in the hearing of those who are present. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament is in John 1. And John the Baptist has baptized Jesus. And, and what he testifies to the crowd is that I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. And then Jesus begins to call his disciples. And he calls Philip. He says, follow me. And Philip does. And so uh, Philip is with the Lord for a little while. And then he sees his friend Nathaniel. And he tells Nathaniel, listen, Nathaniel, the one that Moses and the prophets told us about, the long promised Messiah is here and we have found him, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel's response, probably with a mocking laugh is, can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip's response is, come and see. And so Nathaniel is persuaded to go with Philip and see uh, this good thing from Nazareth that he's so skeptical of. And when Jesus sees Philip and Nathaniel walking toward them, he says to Nathaniel, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Jesus calls him out. He reads his mail and Nathaniel knows that this man somehow knows something about him. And he says, how do you know me? And Jesus says, well, before Philip spoke to you, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathanael says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. When Satan tries to tempt Jesus in Matthew 4, the first two times he tries to tempt Jesus, he goes for his identity. He says, if you really are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And of course, demons constantly uh, encounter Jesus throughout the Gospels and often they fearfully identify him saying things like, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? And Jesus' disciples believed that he was the Son of God. When he calmed the storm, when he stilled the waves and the wind, they said, truly, you are the Son of God. It was Peter's confession of Jesus in answer to the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And it's that confession that Jesus promised on which to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he himself taught that he was the son of God. We see that in one of the most familiar verses of the Bible, but in its immediate context. We see it in John 3, 16 through 18, where Jesus says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that in order that the world through him might be saved. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. In John five twenty five, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And in echo of this prophecy, of course, Jesus isn't only talking about those who are physically dead, but those who are spiritually dead who will hear his voice. My sheep hear my voice 
and I know them, and they follow me. But in echo of this prophecy, in John eleven four, Jesus gets news that his good friend Lazarus is very ill. And what Jesus says to his disciples is, this illness will not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Of course, we know the story. The illness did lead to death. Lazarus did die, and he was dead and in the grave for four days when Jesus finally shows up. And Jesus is chastised by Lazarus' sisters, whom he also loved, and he is uh, bewildered at by uh, the religious leaders who are present when he says, Lazarus, come out. And he who was dead... Here's the voice of the only Son of God, and he walks out of the tomb. The voice of the Son of God was heard, and the Son of God was glorified through it. Even as Jesus was crucified and died, as a Roman centurion who was near the cross saw darkness descend and felt the earthquake, he said, surely this was the Son of God. And then John summarizes his account of Jesus' life like this. Jesus did many other things and signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And I would ask you, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And have you found life, real life, eternal life in his name? If so, that brings us to our last point. The Old Testament anticipates the Son of God. The New Testament announces the Son of God. But you, you are adopted through the Son of God. You are adopted through the Son of God. And we'll meditate more on this together on Christmas Eve. But the truth is, you and I were once orphans. We inherited and we embraced Adam's failure and broken relationship with our Creator. Like the nation of Israel and like King David, we received grace and favor from God, but we still could not heal the rift in our relationship on our own. We did not and could not live as the children of God. Bearing his image, magnifying his glory. So, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence of the Father, through whom all things were made, for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. He became incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and dead. His kingdom will never end. Why? Because he is the Son of God. We were orphans. We were alienated. We were 
due to our own rebellion, cut off and without hope and without God in the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. Maybe today, you in this room or you in my hearing online, perhaps you're still an orphan. Perhaps you have not come to know and believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that His death in your place provides everything you need to stand righteous before a holy God, that Jesus took away your sins and offers to you adoption and eternal life. If today you are still an orphan, if today you have not known the joy of the forgiveness of sins and relationship with the Creator that you were always meant to have, then His call to you is to receive his fatherhood today by repenting of your sins, turning away from your attempts at self-righteousness, believing the good news about the only Son of God, and receive adoption and eternal life. Maybe today you are not an orphan. Maybe you know that you have been adopted by the Lord through Jesus, and yet you're living like an orphan. Your mentality is a scarcity mentality. You believe that somehow the Lord doesn't understand what it is that you're going through. Somehow the Lord hasn't come through for you. Somehow he isn't providing for what you believe that you need. Somehow there's a disconnect between the Father who has redeemed you and your relationship as his trusting child. And I would just say to you what the hymn writer so often says to me, what more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? God the Father has already given you everything you will ever need because he gave you God the Son. Is there anything else that you could ask of him? Everything else pales in comparison. Let us not live as orphans in the world, but let us live as children of the living God, knowing that what we need every minute we have. But as orphans who have been adopted through the Son of God, I would ask us not to close our hearts toward orphans in the world in their distress. How can we, who were orphans but are now adopted children of the living God, see children who are fatherless, see children who are motherless, see children who are in desperate need of the love of God and the love of a family and not in some way ask, how can we respond? How can we in some small way, how can we with personal sacrifice, how can we reflect the love that God has shown to us in adopting us for the sake of these children? I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, not to let this Advent season pass before you answer the question, how am I going to adopt adoption from this point on? 
There are also those who are spiritual orphans all around us. And they need us just like the physical orphans in the world need the people of God. We have the Son of God and adoption through Him and life in His name to share. We have the good news of great joy that shall be for all the people. We have, in the Apostle Paul's words, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. How? And why? How is it possible that this simple, humble life before there was mass communication could have transformed the world in such a way? How is it possible? He was declared to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And from our Heavenly Father, the blessed angel came. And unto certain shepherds brought tidings of the same, that how in Bethlehem was born the Son of God by name. O tidings of comfort and joy. Tidings of comfort and joy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for so great a salvation. We thank you for adoption. We thank you that you call us your children. Let us always marvel at this, and particularly in this season. Lord Jesus, thank you. You are God the Son. You are the Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. And we ask that you would help us in this season and beyond into 2021. Lord, fill our hearts and our lives with adoration of you with praise of you, with obedience to you, Lord, as your dearly beloved children. Thank you for this time together in your word. Lord, please bless it to our ears and to our hearts that we might apply it to your glory. And Lord, help us. Help us to see with your eyes orphans, physical orphans and spiritual orphans. And Lord, give us the grace to pursue them to visit them in their their distress, and to meet their needs. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond to God's word once more in song.